Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our conversation about the Erasing Family documentary featured on Amazon with its director, Ginger Gentile. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Noda, who makes this program possible. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. Coming up, our conversation continues right where we left off when I asked Ginger why children decide to live with one parent over another, and also the reasons that some parents give up on visitation and custody even after a contentious divorce is over. We'll talk about that plus much more. If you have not heard part one, we recommend you listen to that first. We hope you enjoy. We now return to our conversation with Ginger Gentile. I got to say, there were two particular moments in this documentary that really pulled at my heartstrings. And this this was centered around the reasons why families separate. And I, I want to start with the kids. And so there's this, this adversarial process at play within the court system that kind of forces a choice on them. They're going to have to choose one parent over the other. And so what I want to discuss is the reasons. Why do kids choose one parent over another? And how, how is it that they have to come to that option, well, only one option? So if there's one message that the film Erasing Family has, it's that children should never be asked to choose. They should never be put in the middle of adult decisions. And if there's a situation where children need to spend more time with one parent because of geographical distance, the parents should work that out. Because children, whenever they're forced to choose, they feel that they are choosing who they love more. And we have a scene in the film where a girl says that she lied in front of a judge and said she didn't want to see her dad anymore. She wanted to be adopted by her stepdad, and she felt guilt for years over that. So we need to keep children out of the adult conflicts. And in fact, on our website, we have a Bill of Rights for Children of Divorced and Separated Families, and a lot of the rights that they have is not to be put in the middle of adult conflict, pass messages, or be forced to choose. But the way the system is set up in a lot of states is it encourages the courts to find out who's the better parent, instead of helping both parents be the best parents they can be. And we really need to end the blame game and give people the help that they need, as opposed to pointing fingers. And specifically with kids, in a lot of states, uh, children as young as 12 can choose who they want to live with, and they can choose to not want to see a parent anymore. And this is just giving kids a lot of power, because imagine, we've all been teenagers. Imagine if one parent says, I'll give you a car if you decide to live with me. I'll let you stay out as late as you want if you decide to live with me. That can be very tempting. And one of the surprising things people find out when dealing with alienation is that older children are often more susceptible to these behaviors than younger children because younger children can't maintain a lie. So they might say, I hate mommy. And then you ask them, oh, but do you like playing with mommy? Oh, I love mommy because she's fun. But a teenager, they can get, they can become adultified and say, oh, one household has no rules. I have more money at one household. I want to stay in that household. And this can have devastating consequences because it's also normal during the teenage years for kids to switch loyalties with parents often. But what the courts can do is take that one snapshot and make that the law of the family for years to come. And that's very tragic that children would lose contact not only a loving parent, but siblings, step-siblings, extended family, they really lose half of their identity. Yeah, you're speaking the language of a lot of uh, family law lawyers out there with all the daily issues that they have to deal with. 
Very uh, challenging area of work there. You know, my hat goes off to all the lawyers that uh, help out there. But uh, I want to flip the script back to the parents. One of the heartbreaking moments in the film uh, for me was, uh, and this was centered around Ashlyn's family and her father having to make this very tough decision to disengage in this fight for custody and wanting to see his kids. And he just got to a point where it's it, for the for his decision personally, and also uh, probably at the moment was for the greater good. You know, saw the hurt that it was causing his family. Decides to back away. Decides to stop fighting. Decides to give in. It's a tough process. Divorce, uh, family law is a rough process in the courts. And so, you know, tell us about some of the reasons why a parent might just all of a sudden just cave in, give in, and just stop fighting. So in the Erasing Family film, we do have this horrible scene where Ashlyn reads the court papers where her father writes a letter to the judge saying, I can no longer fight. I no longer have the money. I don't think I'm going to win. So I, I love my daughters. I just want an equal time with them and I have to withdraw. And I think this is actually an outcome that's much more common than what we talk about. And because these are people withdrawing from their court cases, it's hard to keep track. I personally know and I found this out as an adult, that this happened in my own family. My father told me he stopped fighting because he saw a lawyer who said, it'll cost you $120,000 to mount a legal defense and you'll lose. And so many parents decided to disengage. And then especially with, with fathers, they're, they're called deadbeats or you're a Disneyland dad, or you don't really care about your kids. You're not active. And for mothers who decide to do this, the shame of being a non-custodial mom in our society is immense. So we have a system that says you need all of these resources, time, and money to fight. And so many parents can't even afford a few hours with a lawyer, let alone a long trial. Instead of focusing on mediation, there's a lot more lawyers who are getting into mediation and also something called collaborative law, where both parties are represented by an attorney but they agree not to go to trial. So it's kind of like mediation on steroids and is great for high conflict cases. And we need to be promoting these things as first resort and making sure that the mediators are used to dealing with difficult cases and not just the easy ones. And also identifying families that need mental health services because so many parents, I mean, think about it. If you begin to talk to other divorced parents who said, I fought for 10 years, it cost me half a million dollars, or I had no money to fight and I didn't win, then you might say, well, the best thing is just to wait until the kid turns 18 and then hopefully they'll look for me. And then what's really tragic is finding out when the kid is 18 that they've been poisoned against you and don't want to look for you. I want to transition into the uh, what I call the economic death spiral of child support laws, uh, more so their enforcement. And so this is a point that uh, you illustrated very well. And, you know, I'm not a family law attorney. And so this is something that I was learning uh, firsthand watching your documentary is that there's this um, the way that in some states, because not every state's the same, that child support is enforced can actually create a rift between the family and make it very challenging for parents to spend time with their kids. And there's a compounding interest, which puts the parent at a uh, distinct financial disadvantage. And so walk us through some of that, these child support laws, which, you know, I would say, objectively speaking, are meant for the benefit of the child can sometimes lead to a rift between the parent and the child. Exactly. So there's a lot of issues with child support laws as they're designed now. One of them is that child support in most states is based on the income of the person who's paying. 
So that means you can have child support awards of $50 a month or 50,000, or we sometimes hear of millions of dollars being awarded in child support. The problem beyond that this could just be a lot of money that obviously you don't need to support a child or not enough money is that in some states, if a person is very poor, the judge will impute an income. They will say, I think you should be able to make $10 an hour. Now, the person doesn't have a job that pays $10 an hour. They have a job that pays $7.50 an hour or they're unemployed. So they can't pay this. And then they're held in contempt of court. So they don't have a right to an attorney and they go to jail, not prison, jail, sometimes for up to six months. Now, whatever job they had, they get fired from. The debt accrues while they're in jail. And who wants to hire somebody who just got out of jail? So this becomes a cycle that's very hard to get out of. And we focused on one case from South Carolina, the Walter Scott case, where he was a man whose people probably remember a few years ago, he was shot in the back by a police officer from running from a traffic stop. And talking to his family, they all think the reason why he ran was because he had been arrested twice for non-payment of child support. And they had done everything they could to get him out of that hole. And his kids were living with him. Three of his four kids were living with him when he was killed. So that's a very tragic example, but he obviously didn't want to go back to jail. And we as taxpayers have to fund somebody sitting in prison. So we're funding somebody not working, destroying their life and their ability to pay for their children. And that money could be spent giving it to the family who's in need. It could be spent on mediation services, mental health services, job training. It could be spent on so many things other than incarceration. Also, these dads are often called, and they're mainly men, deadbeats. And my favorite line from the film, A Racing Family, is they're not deadbeat, they're dead broke. And I think the system was designed in, with the idea, the stereotype of a divorced dad who's spending all of his money on sports cars and doesn't want to pay. And having talked to so many dads, they want to support their kids. These amounts are just unpayable. And if they get a little into debt, they can lose their driver's license. So Dizzy, one of the characters in the film, he spent a lot of time in jail for driving without a license. But how do you get to work if you don't have a driver's license? So it just creates this insane spiral that doesn't help anybody. And then the parent who has the kids can say, I don't want you coming around and seeing your kids because you don't pay child support. So then the person says, well, I'm a worthless parent, might as well just stop showing, showing up. So now the kid has no financial support and no emotional support. And so we're creating deadbeats, basically. I think one of the challenges we have as human beings is that although we have good intentions, sometimes the actions by which we go through to accomplish something good can create the problem. And one one of the highlights that was uh, an eye-opener for me was this idea of the divorce industry complex, this this association of different services that, that sort of circle around these divorce proceedings, whether it's a psychiatrist or an expert witness, and they sort of reinforce the adversarial nature of these custody challenges. And so tell us about that. How, how does this, I guess, sort of a, a, a circle of services that collect around a case, how do they reinforce that nature of these uh, proceedings being challenging and adversarial? So the first thing I want to say is that there's a lot of great professionals out there. I myself have used therapy many times. I've used coaches. Mm-hmm. And I think coaches, therapists, a good lawyer can be very helpful in a lot of cases. The issue is that in some of these cases in family court, 
the proceedings drag on and the judges, as we said before, because they don't know a lot about child psychology, they're not trained, they rely on expert witnesses. The problem is in a lot of jurisdictions, you have to pay for your own expert witness. First thing, okay, well, whoever's paying, is that gonna create a bias for the witness? But some of these witnesses or to do a custody evaluation can cost $40,000. Wow. So I remember one gentleman, I'm not gonna say his name, but he's somewhat famous. He couldn't see his kids and he said to me, I've decided that I'm gonna fight this, but I'm not gonna spend over $400,000. He spent $110,000 with expert witnesses filing one motion that was denied by the judge. So nothing happened with this because you hire three experts to write testimony, to advise you. Think about it, a lawyer who charges maybe $300 to $600 an hour, this adds up very quickly. So that is why my advice overall to people when they're starting is to really look into mediation or collaborative law, even if it's a high conflict case, to find people who are used to this. Because once you start this cycle, it's, it's very hard to get off the wheel once you're on it. And people will often continue this because what is the most precious thing in their life? Their children. They will do anything for their kids. So it's very easy to get people to pay a lot of money because they are desperate to see their children. And every day, talking to the community of supporters we have around the Erasing Family documentary, I talk to people who are contemplating suicide. I hear of suicide stories too often. Sometimes I hear of stories that end up in murder because one side murders the other. Family court is one of the most violent courts because in criminal court, you have the joke is you have bad people on their best behavior. In family court, you have good people on their worst behavior. And the emotions can run very high because people feel very desperate. And they also have this myth that they are going to be heard and justice will be served. And people who are trained as lawyers know that the legal system runs on its own rules. It's not about justice as people think about it. It's about making decisions based on procedure. And when you deal with kids and emotions, those two ideals are in conflict. But there are ways to have better and healthier divorce. I often joke, you know, we should teach people how to pick mates and how to form healthy relationships. A lot of us don't know how to do that. But also when people are breaking up a marriage and there's children involved, making sure that the emphasis is always, how can we maintain both parents and their kids' lives? How can we make this transition healthy? Not, let's pick who's the better parent. All right, we're about out of time, but I do want to end on a positive note. And so, you know, we've talked about some of the challenges. We've talked about some of the reasons why. We've talked about the damage that can be inflicted on families as they become alienated. And so what I want to do is close out on a question about advice. And so there's a lot of families out there around the country right now going through a separation or divorce or the divorce is final and they're having to live with that right now. And so what advice would you give to a family to help prevent them from erasing each other, alienating one another? spending too much time apart? The first piece of advice I would give is never badmouth your ex, which is the parent of your children, in front of your children or on social media, which the world can see, including your children. And a lot of parents are shocked to hear this, but if your kid is over the age of 12, they have fake profiles and they're following you on Facebook. Your kids are smart. And whenever they hear something bad about the other parent, they interpret that as half of me is bad. So if you need to vent, vent with a therapist or in a closed in-person support group, but not in social media and never to your children. Never make your child the friend or your emotional support. 
That's what friends, adults are for. And always think about what's the best outcome we can get without using lawyers in the courts. And I lived in Argentina for many years, and there's a saying that the worst negotiated settlement is better than the best legal decision. And especially in family court, nobody wins a custody case. The way you win is by not fighting. And sometimes that means making compromises that you might not like. But in the end, it's better to have a good relationship and then slowly build in more time than to fight for as much time as you can get or sole custody and really poison the well and the whole family system. Well, Ginger, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about the Erasing Family documentary. And if people want to find out more, they can visit erasingfamily.org. And as you said, it's streaming right now on a lot of platforms. And I highly recommend it. And you do some of those platforms, they can find it on, I mean, I watch it on uh, Amazon, but there's some other ones. There is two. It's on Tubi, which is a free platform. You don't have to sign up or download. And it's on iTunes, Google Play, uh, streaming on YouTube. And we hope for some more. And please set, share it with a teen or young adult, especially if they're a child of divorce. It might really help them understand what happened and healed. Excellent. And also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. Thank you one more time for our sponsor, Noda, who made this program possible. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And lastly, I want to thank our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew for all their hard work. Much, much appreciated. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 